but we felt like we had to start with community. And we had to start with giving the farmers a sense that they were in this together. And we figured that the exact ideas, you know, the policy initiatives and the projects in our communities, that that would come out of a sense of camaraderie. This is Growing in Place, a show about food and resilience in rural Indiana. I'm Violet Barron. My name is Liz Brownlee, and I'm a farmer in southern Indiana. And I'm also the president of the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition. A common theme here on the show is that COVID might not be the root cause of every problem, but it sure can fan the flames on systems that were already under pressure. This is especially true for farmers who are just starting out. Our guest this episode is one of the founders of the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition. That's the Indiana branch of a national group that supports and advocates for beginning farmers. The USDA defines a beginning farmer as someone in their first 10 years on the job. These are folks who face all the challenges felt by young people in this country. Student debt, pricey health care, and institutional racism, just to name a few. They're facing all that when they're just trying to start their careers and their lives, and they're doing it in a field, no pun intended, that's hard even on the good days. The the folks in their first 10 years of farming are very different than people who have been farming for 30 years. So the National Farmers Coalition has surveyed beginning farmers. They do this every five years because they want to create basically like a policy platform for the farm bill, which is the federal policy that impacts farmers. And basically what it shows is that people in their first 10 years of farming, they're something like twice as likely to be um, diverse as the average farmer um, in this country. They have advanced degrees. 60% are women. They self-identify as environmental stewards. So their sort of background and values are quite different than the average um, farmer who's 20 or 30 years in. And the reason I'm referencing, you know, 20 or 30 or more years in is that the average farmer in this country is almost 60 years old. Um, And that's a big issue for our country because that means those folks are thinking about retiring. And we've got to think as a country about, well, who do we, uh, who's going to grow our food (laughs) And, and how do we equip them for success? And so, in fact, the USDA has done that. They've um, they put this big emphasis on beginning farmers and making sure that people who want to start farms have the access to resources they need to, to thrive. Beginning farmers, um, they, they typically don't have farmland. They, they need to figure out how to have enough capital to afford land. There's the knowledge issue, right, because if you're not coming from a farming family, or even if you are and you just want to try more sustainable practices, um, you got to learn how to do it. <laughs> um You've got to have access to capital at the bank to buy things, not just land, but equipment, um, whether that's greenhouses or um, walk-in freezers or, you know, affording your um, seed and labor, things like that. It's not just land access. It's also health insurance. Um, That's a major issue for people who are self-employed and farmers are self-employed. You know, my husband and I have insurance through the marketplace, you know, through the Affordable Care Act. And... And that's critical for us because we're doing work that is physical. You know, it's always in the back of our minds, like, what if one of us breaks a leg? 
you know, or certainly lots of veggie farmers struggle with their backs going out because they're bending constantly and using their backs in a really physical way. And, and a lot of young farmers, you know, these are young families. They have kids and they need, you know, to be able to get their kids to doctor. And so health insurance is a major thing. Student loan forgiveness um, and dealing with student loan debt is a major issue for beginning farmers, as it is for anybody trying to start a business and deal with that debt in addition to capitalizing a business. The equity work, I think, is critical because we're trying to feed all of our communities. And the fact is, beginning farmers who are black, indigenous, or people of color um, have been systemically discriminated against by the USDA. And the USDA admits that and is trying to figure out how to deal with that. And then certainly eaters um, of color, they're just not welcomed into the local food scene in the way that they could be. And we all have to, as farmers, we have to figure out how to deal with that and fight back against it. For her part, after working for years on organic farms throughout the country, Liz and her husband Nate moved back to Indiana about seven years ago. They got to work, turning her family's farm from fields for commercial crops back into pasture, native grasslands, and wildflowers. Their families were supportive and excited for them to start the project, which hasn't been easy but it has been profound. Oh, boy. <laughs> it was both easier than we expected and much harder. We were amazed by how quickly life came back to these fields. Any commodity crop production, it's based on, you know, killing everything except that crop. And that means insects because they could be pests. And that means life in the soil because they could carry disease. And um, that means weeds because they'll compete for sunlight. But uh, monoculture, when there's just one thing growing on the land, it doesn't support a lot of life. And we want to have a lot of life on our farm. When we basically just removed the chemicals from the picture and added in, you know, a focus on building up the health of the soil and growing a diversity of things all in one place at the same time, it was pretty neat to see how quickly we had you know, frogs and spiders of every shape and size and snakes and butterflies and dragonflies and birds swooping around. Um, there, there was a lot of life just within that first summer. Um, and we continue to see that diversity grow. You know, there are more lightning bugs every summer. You know, last summer, <laughs> this is maybe a silly example, um, last summer we saw for the first time a thing called a carrion beetle. Um, and you only get carrion beetles in places where there's actual decomposition happening, um, where there's life and death and more life. And so that felt like a big win to us, you know, like we're bringing back, we're, we're helping to reinstitute real cycles of life. She says they're lucky that her family held on to the land, since buying farmland can be an overwhelming burden for young farmers in itself. They were very nervous for us, though, to move home and try to make that work in Indiana because they hadn't seen that same energy and excitement and you know, customer base for local food here. And so they were really worried that we um, that we just wouldn't find customers. You know, they I think they figured we we would figure out how to raise animals and that part we could do. We've been doing that. But they were nervous that people wouldn't, you know, pay the price that food actually costs. You know, food in the grocery store, a lot of it is, those prices are a real reflection of how much it actually costs to grow food. A lot of that food is subsidized by government support. You know, we've had government support, too, to start our farm. We've had incentive programs that help us convert land from corn and soybeans into pasture and build fences and dig a well. But those are long-term investments, and um, the actual food itself is still quite expensive. <laughs> our families were very nervous that we would get here and no one would want the food that we had. 
and and I think they were just feeling protective of us. We had to do a lot of conversations together as a family and reassuring them that what we were doing wasn't bonkers um, and that there were other farmers in Indiana already doing it. They, they just are, you know, spread out across the state, um, but that there is growing support for local food in the state. And our families have really been cheering us on the whole time. And now, you know, you can't make them shut up about how much they love our farm. And they talk to their friends endlessly about it, I think. So they're very proud of us um, and very, very much on our team. But between the struggle and the reward of making the farm come alive again, Liz felt alone. We were all really aching for more time together with other young farmers. So the reality for us was that, um, you know, we weren't seeing other young farmers on a regular basis. You know, we were seeing other farmers at the farmer's markets and dropping off at restaurants and at the butcher and things like that. But we didn't have that sense of community that that we really wanted um, because when farmers get together, we speak the same language, which is really nice. Um, and so we we wanted people that we could talk with and troubleshoot with and commiserate with and, and celebrate with. It all started when Liz and Genesis McKeeran Allen were paired on a trip sponsored by Purdue University to visit thriving food scenes in other states. They decided they needed some of that energy and creativity back home in Indiana, and the coalition was born. And the, the chapter has just really bloomed. Like we, we got started with a couple of potlucks and said, like, let's just see if anybody wants to come. And, and now, you know, every time we hold an event, we kind of hope, like, okay, maybe we'll get 30 people. And we end up with 50. And, you know, a big chunk of them are brand new to our group, which feels good. It feels like there are more people starting farms every year. And there are more people who are finding community through the Young Farmers Coalition. Some chapters are city-based throughout the state they're in. But Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition is statewide, from Louisville to Gary. You know, Ohio's group is 40 years old, right? They've been building this community and um, and together building more of a customer base for local food and getting more local food into schools. They can just, you know, farmers can do a lot more when they team up. And um, and so we felt like, you know, we need to do so many things in Indiana to improve our local food system. It's It's everything from thinking about equity in the food system and how to make sure farmers markets aren't just white spaces um, to, you know, local food in institutions and hospitals and schools um, to state level policy. Like there's all this stuff that needs to happen, but we felt like we had to start with community. Um, We had to start with giving the farmers a sense that they were in this together. Um, And, and we figured that the exact ideas, you know, the policy initiatives and the, um, projects in our communities, that that would come out of a sense of camaraderie. I can see that sense of, like, relief on people's faces when they see each other across the room, and they haven't seen each other in months, and they get to share stories about how it's going on their farms and what they want to do next. But all that was overshadowed by the battle to adjust to this new reality and stay afloat. Now the group has been hosting virtual trainings to help farmers navigate online sales. COVID has shown a light on all the problems. (laughs) Farmers sort of 
stream of what they were growing and how they were getting it to their customers, like individuals, but also restaurants and also chefs and hospitals, etc. It all changed, like overnight. <laughs> so on our farm, we went with a really low-tech solution. We have a Google form, and we put it out each week, and we ask people to reserve what it is they want for market pickup that weekend. But our farm's quite small, so a lot of farms, especially the larger veggie farms, have really, really pivoted to online sales. So they've done things like created their own online stores in a matter of like a week <laughs> back in the spring, and now they're moving tons of product that way because then customers can go on and they can click off what they want and pay with their card, and all they have to do on Saturday is pop to market, pick it up, and they get out of market. And then a lot of farmers, including bakers and you know folks who produce meat and, and cheese makers and things like that, have um, tapped into these uh, online marketplaces like Market Wagon and Hoosier Harvest Market, where customers can go on and buy from lots of farmers all at once uh, and have their food either delivered to their doorstep or at a pickup spot. And it's been so impressive to see how farmers have just figured out those systems and jumped on board, um, and it, and you know, the reality is that customers were already switching to more online sales, and so this has been COVID has been a real kick in the pants for farmers to figure out how to adapt to that changing customer um, reality. Um, and thankfully, those things are you know were already somewhat in place, you know, because a lot of farmers when restaurants shut down, a lot of farmers had loads of product that would have been moving to those restaurants, you know, that things that were going to be ready to harvest that week. And what do you do with them? You can't just keep them. you got to figure out how do I get this out to people in a whole new way. The other problems are bigger, though. There was a run on butcher shop dates for farmers raising animals for slaughter. If you can't get butcher dates, you can sell your animal to a wholesaler. But overall, it's hard to say what will happen to a lot of farmers who are in that boat this year. So we raise pigs, for instance, and when we went to schedule our dates for our pigs, <laughs> we had to call every butcher shop we've ever worked with to find a date that would line up with when our pigs were going to be ready in October. Um, and that was back in April. Um, so they were scheduling at six months now. At the farmer's market this last Saturday, I talked to a gentleman who said that um, butcher shops are actually scheduling into next June at this point. Um, and that's a real problem because... I don't even know what I'm going to raise next year for sure. I have a guess, but it depends on 72 variables. <laughs> so um, there's not enough capacity at our butcher shops. Like the long and short of it is that there's not enough capacity at our butcher shops in this country, and COVID-19 has highlighted that fact, um, and farmers are really struggling. That stress for farmers who raise livestock, it takes an emotional toll. It also takes a financial toll. <laughs> and then... And, you know, in terms of the local food system and people's faith in their ability to get food locally, it means they're that much more reliant on grocery stores. As with everyone right now, Liz can't predict the future, and she's taking it day by day. I think the next few months just feel incredibly uncertain. And I think that's true for every person <laughs> on the planet right now. It feels especially confusing to me as a farmer, and that's what I'm hearing from other beginning farmers as well, is 
do we increase production because people are thinking more about their food supply and they're thinking more carefully about the local businesses they want to support, and, and that's wonderful, and so we should grow more food to be ready for that demand? Or should we actually scale down a little bit to make sure we're not spending too much money and um, we're not producing things that people aren't going to be able to afford because of continued or increased unemployment? And at some point, we just have to make a guess <laughs> and hope that it works and, and make some contingency plans. Farming is always risky business. You know, there's an old joke about gambling and how, like, farmers don't need to gamble because we do it every single day. But COVID has amplified that risk um, and that uncertainty. And we're doing a storytelling project where we're trying to um, get Hoosiers talking, and this is both farmers and eaters, get Hoosiers of all sorts talking about um, what does farming look like these days? What does cooking dinner with your family look like these days? Um, and, and really just updating that narrative about food in Indiana. Um, I think a lot of people think it's just corn and soybeans, and while that is a piece of the puzzle, it's also diversified small-scale farms, and it's, you know, families passing on this tradition of raising animals well, and, and it's farmers trying new things and producing new crops that their customers are asking for. And so we're we're trying to figure out how do we collect stories when we can't get together to share stories, um, so we're working on a podcast, and we're we're trying to figure out how to like call and interview farmers and eaters. We're figuring we're going to dig in this winter when farmers have more time to talk with us. <laughs> They're not in the middle of the season. It's been a hard year on our farm, and so we're trying to take the small joys where we can find them. I really delight in um, reading novels. <laughs> it's like how I kind of turn off from the realities of the world. So taking time over a good breakfast that has, you know, our eggs and our neighbor's sourdough and another neighbor's, you know, greens and another farmer friend's onions, right? This hearty breakfast that for us feels very normal. Sitting down to eat breakfast and read a book and just be quiet for a little bit before, you know, going out to feed all the animals and figuring out how to sell our food. It's really neat to see, you know, these carrots and tomatoes and all these things um, coming from the land that, that that wasn't there 10 years ago. You can follow Liz and Nate's farm at nightfallfarm.com and the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition at hoosieryfc.org. And on Instagram, they're at Hoosier Young Farmers. This show is brought to you by Indiana University's Center for Rural Engagement. Engaging communities through research, teaching, service, and partnerships. Our home is at Indiana Environmental Reporter. Thanks to the Media School at Indiana University. Thanks to Jody Ellett and the Resilient Hoosier Communities team at CRE. And a big thank you to Elaine Monahan, who made all of this possible. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time.